everyone, this is Mike from Locations Unknown. I'd first like to thank everyone who's tuned into our podcast. We've been getting a lot of great feedback on Facebook, and we really appreciate all the support. Uh, back in episode three, when we did our show on Bobby Bicep, I had the chance to interview a gentleman by the name of Dave Haskin. He's the search and rescue director for Rampart Search and Rescue out in Colorado. The original interview was way too long to put into our show, so we had to break it up into pieces. But we told everyone we would post the entire interview unedited uh, after episode three went live. So enjoy this uh, interview. It's about 40 minutes long. Dave has a vast knowledge of search and rescue in the Colorado area, and I really enjoyed talking to him. So if you have any uh, questions after listening to it, you know, post it in the Facebook comments, and we'll try to answer uh, everyone as soon as we can. Thanks. Hi, Dave. Uh, thank you very much for coming on the show and agreeing to spend a part of your day with us. Sure. Just, to, just to start things off, introduce yourself and kind of go into your background a bit of how you started in search and rescue. Sure. Well, my name is Dave Haskin, and I'm the chief with uh, Rampart Search and Rescue here in Adams County in Colorado. And I've been involved in this for many years. It dates back to 1973. Um, I kind of got involved in it in kind of a unique, different way. We, I lived in Manitou Springs, which is a suburb of Colorado Springs. The house that I lived in was the last residential house before you went up Ute Pass, which was uh, a decent graded uh, mountain road that goes up towards Woodland Park and, and further west there on Highway 24. And we had a series of semis that was coming down, losing their brakes, and they would crash right in front of my house. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, not in the house. Yeah. They did uh, crash into a apartment complex across the street from us, but uh, luckily it was just the garage area. The <laughs> residence was on the second and third floor, and I got involved... Uh, well, directing traffic in a couple of them. And so that's where it kind of got the bug and I ended up being a deputy with the uh, local sheriff's office and uh, got involved with the setting uh, up a search and rescue team back around 1973. So okay, so prob- kind of involved in it on and off ever since. So um, back in the 70s, I take it in your part of Colorado, there wasn't really any search and rescue teams operating? Well, I would say that in the mid to late 60s is when search and rescue here in Colorado kind of started to kind of get its act together. Um, The uh, local team down there in Colorado Springs, El Paso County, they came together and created their search and rescue team between a CB club and a uh, 4x4 group. And they combined and created their search and rescue team down there. So in the late 60s is when everything was starting to come together. The state put together what they call the Colorado Search and Rescue Board, which most of the search and rescue teams are a member of within the state. Okay. And that was starting to come together about that same time. Excellent. Okay. And like you said, you've been involved in search and rescue for, I think you said 40 plus years now, off and on. Yeah. So you're, you're probably very familiar with Colorado. And I know the case we're talking about is specifically related to kind of the Rocky Mountain National Park. I'm assuming you've probably been up there. Can you maybe give the listeners kind of a overview of basic geography of the area, you know, how busy does it get in the summer, things like that. Well, 
magnet area. Mm -hmm. um, they have a lot of wildlife up there. Uh, can range from uh, elk to moose to mountain lion and bear. Yeah, it's not uncommon that bears will work their way down even into uh, the suburbs of Denver, Colorado Springs, and so forth. So, <laughs> seeing wildlife is something that you see on a daily basis. It would not. Uh, surprise me and I know several people that do live in the area personally and they've got wildlife that actually comes through their front yards on a, on a daily basis. Okay. It, it's kind of wilderness. Uh, part of the uh, Rocky Mountain National Park is uh, above Timberline. Yeah. And for your listeners, if they're not familiar, Timberline is where the oxygen content is so low, trees do not grow. And then above that is when it turns into basically your rock. Okay. It gets tundra in there. Yeah. But uh, for the most part, that's one thing that uh, people coming from the lower elevations do have a problem when they come up and start hiking is that altitude difference. Yeah, I know sometimes when we've been on some of our hikes, when there was a couple, a hike we did in Hawaii where we're up to over 14,000 feet, and I actually started getting altitude sickness. That's quite common. Yeah, is that, in, in a lot of your search and rescues that you've seen over the years, is altitude sickness kind of one of the things people really have a problem with? That can be. Um, not being prepared when they go up for a hike. Yeah. Even in, uh, say, Denver, that's a mile high. Mm -hmm. um, some people coming up here, uh, the wife, for example, she came from Florida. Um, some people, especially those that have asthma, um, they really feel it. And it's one of those things when you first come into the area, you don't want to move around a lot. You want to kind of acclimate to the area yeah. before you kind of try to go up to those higher elevations. Otherwise, you can't get dizzy and pass out. There's people that's been known to do that. Okay. Segwaying into my next question, suppose a hiker is out in Rocky Mountain National Park or kind of a similar area like that. What what would a response be for a search and rescue team such as yours if they've been reported missing, people aren't sure where they are? What would your next steps be? Well, normally how that would uh, function is the call would come in probably through 911. That's where most of the calls would come in from. Um, out here in Colorado, the uh, sheriff is the one that's the uh, responsible individual for all search and rescue activity okay. within the state of Colorado. That varies from state to state. Um, New Mexico, for example, that's handled through Highway Patrol. But for us, it's handled through the sheriff's office. Yeah. Um, if you look at it correctly, um, if there is a missing person, that could be a missing person or is there foul play? Yeah. So law enforcement would have to be involved just in case it happens to go in that particular direction. It's better to start with it than the backtrack. So a call would come in, say, to our 911 dispatch center. Um, search and rescue would be needed. Uh, the sheriff's office would be contacted. They, in turn, would contact us or the 911 dispatch center uh, would call us. And then I would put a page out and get our people to uh, start responding. The first thing I would ask is, who are we looking for? How long have they been gone so I can get some basic 
information. Yeah. Uh, if a person is lost, the sooner we get involved, the better. Yeah. The the chances of it being a positive outcome probably go down exponentially every day they're missing. It's not good. I can't say that it's uh, linear, but uh, yes, the sooner you can get on the trail, get on the scent, say with the search dogs, yeah, uh, better of an outcome you get. And as the days progress and you can't find Johnny or Sally or whoever happens to be lost. In your experience, uh, being out in Colorado and doing you know search and rescue for as long as you have, what are some of the common reasons or issues you've seen when it comes to people going missing either in your area or up in the mountains i know you said you've you've worked on a lot of search and rescues in the past kind of up in the mountains as well a lot of times people will come to the area and some people that even actually live up here uh, that want to go hiking um they will not dress for the weather yeah. They will not be prepared. It's one of those things you need to be prepared for anything. It's better to overpack than underpack. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll come out and they'll take on a hike and the weather will change. Um, the higher up you go, the colder it is. So yeah. you're down at lower levels, it's say 60 degrees. You go up a few thousand feet, it could be 40 degrees, you're starting to get cold. And one thing that I always tell our people in training as well as when we do these little safety uh, seminars uh, for the general public, when you're going up a trail, periodically turn around and look behind you because you know what it looks like going forward. You're, yeah. You're catching the sights, you're taking pictures, but if you have to get off of that mountain or out of that area in a hurry, you've got a bear or mountain lion, you want to get out of there, and you make a U-turn, the trail looks a lot different, and you want to make sure that you go down the right path, and yep. you don't make the left-hand turn type of thing. So always turn around and just look behind you so you know what it looks like, so you, you'll be able to exit uh, correctly. That's interesting. You mentioned people going out there not prepared. When we talked in our last episode, when we talked to the public information officer from Joshua Tree, he said one of his biggest causes of issues where they have to go into the park and find someone is people coming from the city and going out in the high desert when it's 105 and sandals and no water and t-shirt. And so it, it sounds pretty universal. Anywhere you go, you're going to have people that underestimate what nature is. <laughs> Correct. Correct. Yes. There, there, I, I saw something not too long back that a gal, uh, that was very well prepared. She had hiked up a particular trail a lot. And when she did, she started out with, um, shorts and basically a tube top. <laughs> and then as she was hiking up, it got a little bit colder. Yeah. And he uh, ended up putting a coat on and put start lay, layering up, and uh, she did it correctly. No problem with her, but she was noticing there was some footprints in the snow that she was running into. And uh, we're considered high desert, so yeah. even the missus has been outside in a t-shirt when it's 19 degrees and the sun is out. But when you get up into the mountains, it gets a lot colder. You start getting wind. Now you got a chill factor. Yep. Um, so she 
ended up, this hiker, uh, she actually found this individual. He was almost getting frostbite because he was going into vapor lock where his uh, blood was beginning to thicken up a lot wow. because he was not moving. He was just sitting down. Yeah. You start to lose your mental capacity, uh, thinking process. Mm. And so she actually got him down off of the mountain. So things can happen if, if you're not prepared for it. So that that's the big thing that we have is tourists, people that come in from other parts of the United States. Mm. They come out here, enjoy the state. That's fine. We're more than happy to have you out here. But just watch what you're doing up there because we don't want you to turn out to be one of these missings and we can't find you. It sounds like exposure is a, a, a major cause of problems that search and rescue might have to respond to. Do you ever have any, I mean, how common are animal attacks or are people, I know in Joshua Tree, when we talked to the guy down there, a lot of a lot of issues come from people climbing on rocks and falling. And do you see that kind of stuff by you? Yes. Uh, there's a lot of hikers uh, that will come in and they'll want to do some mountain climbing. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, their um, carabiners and pitons will actually come out of the rocks and they'll fall. Oh, geez. And they have to call search and rescue in and they have to actually uh, throw their ropes over the side of the edge of the cliff and actually bring the people up. And then we have to get an air ambulance in there to take them to the uh, local hospital. That, yeah. That happens frequently. I remember when I lived down in Colorado Springs, where we're talking in the, in the early 2000s, uh, the search and rescue team down there, this is around Pikes Peak, yep. um, and they were paged out five times in one day. Wow. <laughs> Some of these teams can be very busy, especially in the summertime tourism. I talked to you previously, we were kind of talking about the case of Bobby Bizup, and you had mentioned that search and rescue back in the 50s versus what we see now in 2019 would be vastly different. Could you go in kind of, you know, the a typical, the differences you would probably see between a search and rescue in 1958 versus 2019? Yeah. kind of in its um, beginning stages mm-hmm. and if I remember right they had about 300 people or so that were out there searching um, it's uncertain if they did grid patterns if they had incident command or they had any type of a structure as far as what group or team was going to be searching wet area from my understanding, it sounded like they, you know, they had about 400 volunteers, sheriff's department officers. They had bloodhounds, and then they had a couple teams of skin divers for some of the ponds, but that was about it. Yeah, yeah. and, you know, if, if you get some people in there and they're not trained, yeah, they really don't know to a slight degree what they're looking for. They're looking for an individual. Um, and there is such a thing that's considered a probability of being found. Mm-hmm. And what that is, is if you're in an area that is heavily wooded and you got a lot of uh, sagebrush and you got a lot of uh, um, scrub oak, you could walk by something and not even notice they're there if they happen to be laying down or unconscious off the trail. Yeah. So you have to kind of watch and look in various areas like that. We were on a search that was in the Hayman Fire area, and that was burnt due to a forest fire. Mm -hmm. An individual was lost. If you stood on any 
in that area, you could look, scan, and you could see the valleys. You could see where the uh, uh, water was running, etc. No one could really hide. But when you're up in the mountains, they could hide 20 feet from you, and you could walk by them and wouldn't even be able to see them. So your probability of finding somebody in a situation like that would go down. Yeah. Okay. So it sounds like training is one area that would be vastly different then versus now. Training would be, and I would also say that um, the other thing would be enhancements with uh, the spots. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar. There's what they call a PLB, a personal locator beacon. Um, you mm-hmm. can get them at any um, uh, outfitter that's out there. Yeah. REI has got them. Amazon's got them. Um, and, and if they're GPS enhanced, um, we'll find you within, or your longitude and latitude coordinates would be within a mile. Yeah. If not GPS enhanced and we're just going over radio signals, your longitude and latitude is within 10 miles. Okay. But at least we got an idea of where where you're located at. That's, technology has come a long ways for the hikers that are up there, the people that are involved in avalanches. There's avalanche beacons now. Yep. So people can be found relatively quick. So nowadays it's it's a little different than what it was back back in the 50s and the 60s. One question I have, sure. I see this, you, you see it, you read about it in every search and rescue. They always, they bring out dogs. Most of us have pets and I, you know, I kind of think of a dog as just smelling and the air and kind of how sensitive of a scent can these dogs follow? So say there's really no trace of anybody or say they fell down a deep hole. Is a dog going to go by that and notice the smell something down in that hole? Yes. One thing that uh, you have to watch and we train on with, with the dogs is that they, and a lot of people think that we go out and find their missing pet. No, we, we don't <laughs> go down go down that road. Yeah. But how the dogs work is, is they train weekly mm-hmm. and they get a scent article and the scent article is something that the individual wore either on them yeah. or they may have slept in such as their... Um, pillowcase off the bed the dog senses off of that and the dog follows that scent okay if you have a pot of stew the dog smells the carrots the onions and things that are in the pot individually yeah we smell the whole thing but the dog smells each individual wow. um, item that's actually in the pot of stew. So therefore, the dog, once you get the scent article, locks in on that scent and will follow. Now, the case is, is how far can the dog go? We have an individual here in Denver that, that has a canine. Yeah. Um, he's, he, he does his own thing. He's not part of a search and rescue team. But he started out in Boulder for a missing person. And what he did is he would get a track along the road, put the dog in the vehicle, Mm -hmm. drive down the road a couple of miles, get out, get the dog to reset, find the scent, follow. And he did that kind of hopscotch going down. He started out in Boulder, got over on I-25, went straight north, and he landed up in the middle of Wyoming. And he 
went to a trailhead and actually found the individual's car. Didn't wow. find him, but they did <gasps> find the individual's car. Wow. So would you say one of the best tools then for search and rescue to find someone that's missing if you don't know their location is would be the dogs? Yes. A dog, and the way that it normally works is you send the dogs out first okay. so that they can get a scent because if you start getting people out there on foot, then they start contaminating the trail. That scent gets moved around. Wind will blow the scent in various different directions. So, yeah, you try to get as accurate of a reading as you can. Okay. Yeah, and I know, um, obviously, one big difference between uh, the 50s and today, I know when Bobby went missing, they did have some airplanes in the air. Probably wasn't great, but I know today, obviously, you guys also utilize helicopters. And can you go in a little bit of kind of the air power that you guys bring out there if someone goes missing? got a couple wings of the Civil Air Patrol, mm-hmm. and uh, we can utilize them. They're basically fixed wing, but they can fly around and look at, uh, see if they see somebody that's in the general description in the general area. Yeah. Um, we do have access to some helicopters. Uh, Buckley, uh, we were uh, using them when we had the Boulder flood in 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have Flight for Life and Air Life and um Flight for Life is uh, working with Search and Rescue quite a bit, actually. They're, they're really helpful for us. Uh, there are air ambulances out here, and we can send one of our team members up in the chopper and will help us search. They themselves will also help us search. Okay. We do have Denver PD has a helicopter. They've been called out numerous times on trying to give us some air support when we're up in the air. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, and, and we do have two drones. Uh, yeah, that's true. We have drones now. I don't even think of that, but drones are becoming a lot more popular too. Yeah, in search and rescue teams, it's something kind of new for us. Yeah. Uh, I guess it's kind of new for everybody. And we're kind of working around the FAA as far as when we can deploy them. Mm-hmm. High right now, it's 400 feet in all directions. Um, if it's in search and rescue, you can go out of that. You need special permits and licensing and et cetera, et cetera. So we're, we're working through it. And I think when it's all said and done, uh, we'll have an arsenal of different types of toys and stuff that we can use when we get out in the field. It's probably a lot more cost effective to use drones versus getting helicopters out there and planes Uh and and safer for the search and rescue people that don't have to be, you know, up in the plane too. Well, we had um, a a missing uh, female here about two years ago and uh, we had our bikes were out there. Mm -hmm. We had our 4x4s, ATVs, um, so, yeah, there's a lot of uh, tools in the drawer, so to speak, that, that we can use if, if need be. It, it varies. And we've also got a couple of boats that we can deploy. Yeah. So it, depending upon the situation, we do have some things that we can do. One other question, too, I had in related to if someone goes missing in the mountains. What would you, as a search and rescue person that's seen years and years of different cases if someone realizes they're missing what what's their next step should they just stay in place and shelter down and wait for someone to find them or should they try to head down the mountain or what would you recommend well it depends upon the situation and every situation is different Mm -hmm. If, if you're missing I would say 
they try to get back to the trail. Yeah. And if you're kind of injured and you cannot move much, get to the trail because somebody at some point will come by and you can get help. Yeah. If you take a cell phone, you may or may not have signal if you've got the cell phone. Mm -hmm. The other thing is if you do take a cell phone, take one of those chargeable batteries or yep. those little capacitor type things so you can charge it up because if you are not in an area that's got signal, it will drain your battery faster than if it does have signal. Yep. If you do, you can get 911 if you can make a call. Mm -hmm. If not, the best thing is to just stay put. If you start moving around, your loved ones made the 911 call, Larry is supposed to be hiking up this such and such trail, yep. and if you're out walking around, you're a moving target, and we can't find you. You need to just stay put and stay there. If you can start a fire, get some smoke going, yep. get something, carry a whistle so that you can toot out uh, SOS, mm -hmm. three shorts, three longs, so people can kind of catch on, you know, do, do what you can. Interesting. Yeah, I've always thought moving around probably when you're trying to be found would be the worst possible thing you could do. And, and people will do that. They, they'll, they'll look around. They'll try to find a high rock or a high area where they can look around and yeah. maybe see somebody. The best thing is just get close to the trail as you can and uh, just kind of stay put. Okay. Start making a shelter, you know. Yeah. Do what you can. And like I say, every situation is different. And before you even go out, let people know where you're going, yep. what time you're leaving, and what time you're expected back. And once you get back, make a phone call and say, I'm back. Yeah. So that your your loved one that you told won't dial 911 and look for you when you're already on your way home Do a couple of times. Whenever you're out hiking, you never back exactly on time. But yeah, it's, right. it's always good to let people know that you're back. Yes. Moving on, our case this episode is about this kid named Bobby who went missing in 1958. It's a kind of a bizarre case because he was fishing at a, a little creek and a camp counselor came up to him and they said it's time for dinner and they started walking down this well-defined trail down to their camp and the counselor walking, looking forward and then looks back and Bobby's just gone. They almost immediately started a, a search and rescue that lasted for nine days. And back then they had quite a few people and bloodhounds. And and then right. the, the, the weirdest part was a year later, uh, some of the counselors, 2,000 feet up and several miles away, ended up finding a fragment of a hearing aid and some clothes and a couple bone fragments. So, right. I, you know, it, it'd be interesting to hear your take on this being that you've been in search and rescue for so many years. And maybe what do you think happened to Bobby? Because now. I don't think anyone really knows. It's not 100% unique, but it is different to find remains that are that far away. Yeah. Um, you can, your mind can go wild in different areas. It narrows <laughs> it down. Um, it could be backpackers. Um, somebody uh, may, may have snatched him. Full, but that's always a possibility, a thing you can't really rule out. Um, thing is, the counselor, you would think, would have heard him yell or scream or something, uh, even if he came across a wild animal, such as a bear or a mountain lion that 
um, they have a tag team, you would think you would have heard something. Now, that being said, the only thing that would make sense is that he ran across some type of a wild animal that got a hold of him. Then over time, the you know, I mean, it's just like any other animal that's uh, up on, on the hill. They're always looking for food. They get stuff and they fight over it. And where he ended up, and it was just bits and pieces, it wouldn't surprise me that some animal or elk or some animal had, you know, got where the main were found. It's 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 kind of hard. Your imagination could go wild. I know. Yeah, <laughs> to kind of make it a little more interesting, there were all, there were a couple people that down in Estes Park, I think that's 15 miles away from where he went missing, claimed you know a couple months later to have seen him and walking around in town. It just makes it even more bizarre. I'm on the the leaning that something criminal in nature may have happened. It's weird that the bloodhounds they had up there, if you has been snatched by an animal, you'd almost think they would have picked that scent up. One, one would think, um, thing of it is, you get 300 people up there. Again, were the bloodhounds uh, up there the first day? Were they brought in as an afterthought a couple of days later? Uh, area gets contaminated with all these people going through. See, how the, the dogs find your scent is your skin. Your skin is constantly shedding off these particles all the time. And that's what the dogs log in on. So if that gets moved around high winds, uh, rain, uh, yeah, it's that's why you try to get the dogs up there as soon as you can and they go in first. Yeah, don't contaminate it with the, all the searchers. Right, and, and that's some of the things that you kind of learn the years and between the 50s and now maybe in the 50s they did it differently back then versus the way that we do things now um we kind of learned we also found out uh early on that if you take a dog inside of a house it's not going to be any good um we found kids um under beds uh in the dryer <laughs> we found the clothes hamper got them uh between the uh um and when you take a dog inside of a house, that, that's where the kid is. They pull over that house. So it's it's almost like, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Being that the case is so old, there's not a lot of detail on it anymore. But, uh, no, I just wanted to get your, your opinion on uh, sure. what happened. Yeah, I, I would head towards, I mean, me personally, after watching the uh, the video on it, the first place I would go to was, was an animal attack. Okay. And then if it was not an animal attack, then it could have been um, done by by a human of some kind. Okay. So that, that would be my, my two areas that, that I would look at, but I'd want to get, you know, other people's input. And, yeah. And and so forth. The uh, uh, the people that were running the search at the time mm. may have had some ideas, and what led to those ideas, the um, the type of individual he was, would he wander off on his own or not? But a lot of factors that we're just not privy to, being this this late in the game. 
so this is kind of more of a question about uh, kind of you and your team. So when yeah. we uh, first spoke, you uh, mentioned that your team is entirely made up of uh, volunteers. Uh, a couple of just qu- you know questions off of that. Um, you know, one, do you find it kind of difficult sometimes to balance a day job and then you know your volunteer work on the search and rescue team? Then you mentioned your organization doesn't charge for the services you provide. How do how are you funded? Are you funded purely through donations from citizens or? Yeah, well, the first part of your your question there is, um, yeah, we are all volunteers. Uh, there are a few uh, search and rescue teams in the state that are not. Uh, what they are are deputy sheriffs, and uh, they are just the same as the SWAT team are part of the deputy that are on the sheriff's office, um, the posse, etc. So, yeah, that's how that works. For us, it's totally volunteer. Um, I, I work for a communications company uh, here in uh, Denver, and they are nice enough that if uh, the call comes, I can drop everything and uh, go running and pick up my work uh, when things are settled down. Um, not everybody has that luxury. And the way I tell my team is if you are at work and the page goes out, that pays the bills. We don't. So stay at work. But when you get off work, it would be nice if you to call in and see if we still need you. And if that be the case, then they are the second wave of people coming in when they start getting off work. They'll say, hey, I'll be getting off work at three. Okay, fine. At least I know you're coming and we can find a place for you to uh, to fit in. Uh, we really rely on them quite heavily. How many do you have on your team? We are about a 35 to 40 people. We have debts that go down as uh, 10 years old up until 20. Um, we used to have explorers, but we found out that uh, uh, they go from 14 to 20. But if we did our own cadet program, we'd go a little bit younger than that. Yeah. So in, in as far as uh, funding for your organization, are you fully funded through um, donations? You mentioned you're a non-for-profit. Yeah, yeah, yeah we're 501c3, so it, it's uh, the donations. I'm sorry, I forgot that part of the question. All through donations, uh, we do not get any government funding at all. We do for grants for various different things. Uh, we did get uh, a grant uh, through the state uh, last fall or uh, summer, actually, for uh, three computers that we can use with our mission coordinators to go out in the field and actually uh, run the operations when they're out there. So we've got some mapping and some computers for them to use. So we, we do get that from time to time, but for the most part, it's all donations. Okay. And, um One question for you, because you have such a long experience in search and rescue, what are some really, you know, interesting cases you've worked on or high profile things that's happened while you've been on your search and rescue team? Uh, Well, one would have been um, that gal down in Lost Valley that I kind of talked about in the beginning. Um, She went missing in the morning uh, before uh, lunch and 
she hadn't been seen since. Uh, it, it, it was a compound uh, that did not burn down with fire, which was the biggest uh, forest fire that Colorado had. Uh, this would have been about 2003 or four. And we searched for a week up there and did not find any trace of her at all. No wow. footprint, no nothing. And that's where you've got no, no undergrowth, no nothing. You can sit on or stand anywhere and you can see for miles. No. Um, 2013, we had um, the uh, Boulder flood that flooded uh, part of the Rocky Mountain National Park, Lyons, uh, Estes Park, Boulder. Um, we were involved with that. Uh, what was interesting about that is, you know, FEMA has uh, USAR, and you've seen them, uh, especially around the hurricanes, where they're going mm. from door to door, and they mark the big uh, orange X on the side of the door, and et cetera. We needed to go door to door over there, and your next door neighbor could be miles away. Those were being flooded and cars and boulders were going down the canyons and it was loud and that rained for like three days straight and we had to go door to door and doing so you had to go over that mountain range go over that mountain range and then you hit the next house to do that uh, Buckley brought in their choppers and they actually uh, choppered us in dropped us in a field and then our members along with other teams and personnel would fan out and find the uh, evacuees and then bring them to the collection site and then back you out. In that particular operation, they uh, transported out more people than they did during the Katrina event in New Orleans. So that would be, I guess, pretty profile. We had news media out here covering it national the whole bit. Never a dull day. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. You, the thing of it is, is when the phone rings, you never know what you're going to get into. You really don't. And you won't believe how many law enforcement officers around that's got my particular cell phone on speed dial. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, I guess we'll uh, we'll wrap up the interview. Just so anyone listening, if they're if they're curious, where uh, where is your website? If in case someone that's living out in the the Denver area wants to donate to your organization or you know read more about what you guys do. Uh, 
we're located in Adams uh, County is where we're based out of. We okay. do search and rescue in Adams, Morgan, and Lincoln counties out here in Colorado. And our website is www.rampartsar.com. So it's rampartsar.com. If you do a Google search for Rampart Search and Rescue, mm -hmm. it'll pop up. And if they want to donate, we do have a PayPal button on our main uh, page that they, they can donate. They don't have to be a member of PayPal. If they just got a credit card, they can put it in there. So, okay. okay. And then all of our information is on there. We're always looking for members. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the door is always open. Excellent. Well, uh, Dave, I, I thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. And you had a lot of really interesting things to say. And it's good to get the opinion of an expert in search and rescue. Because Joe and I are just, we, we love hiking and backcountry hiking, but we don't see the things you right. see every day. So I thank you for that. No problem. Glad to do it. All right. Yeah, take care. Thanks.